right. Good evening. You made it. Um, we are in the book of Nahum tonight. We've been working through the minor prophets. Here we are. Uh, I feel like increasingly as we get through these books, the more I'm like, I just know the name. That's really all I know about this book. And I, I'm only 80% sure I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Uh, but I'm fairly certain we're in Nahum. And uh, let me pray for us. And we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for um, how you've spoken to us. And what a strange encouragement it is to see your prophet speak to your people so long ago about things so distant from our situation and yet so immediately relevant to uh, the, the things that are actually even more true than what these prophets and, and your people back then receiving this word even experienced. The, these things are all pointing to, to shadows that are really about an even greater reality. We thank you for that because it means that we can study these prophets and, and glean things from them. Um, we thank you for the gospel and we're glad that we get to revel in, in thinking about all its implications. And uh, ask that you bless our time in your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the book of Nahum. Um, it's similar to Obadiah, which Springer taught on a few weeks ago. Uh, in which there's, there's this prophet from among God's people who is now speaking not just to God's people, but it's as if he's speaking in front of God's people to all of their enemies, uh, which has a really, a really nice uh, trajectory to it, right? Because it's like you're driving on the road. Has this ever happened to you? And, and, uh, and somebody flies by. I mean, they're just speeding down the highway. And you just wish there was a cop right there to address this injustice that has committed, uh, been committed against you and all the other drivers on the road. Never mind your driving speed, but this person needs to be found and, and taken into custody. And of course, you never really, it feels like in that moment, I feel like I never actually see justice brought about the way I want it to. I'm always, uh, I'm, I'm always just finding the remnants of the justice. I never get to witness the cop see him and then tag him and pull him over. Sorry, Mark. Anyway. This is a little bit of that, where the Lord, he speaks to a particular enemy of Israel's uh, with, with such forcefulness uh, and, and truly uh, a swiftness of justice uh, that, that can only be an encouragement for God's people and a source of dread for anyone who is opposed to the Lord. Um, the, the object of God's uh, ire here in this in this prophetic book, happens to be the city of Nineveh, of Jonah fame. Uh, if you remember in the book of Jonah, which Jacob taught on a few weeks ago, the conclusion of that book has much more to do with Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites and his, his utter refusal to obey the Lord and go and proclaim good news of repentance to them uh, and in the end, the, the Ninevites, actually, they repent. In fact, they're maybe more repentant than the people of Israel would have been at the time. But, but that's not the final word on Nineveh, unfortunately. And here in the book of Nahum, we get a glimpse as to where things have gone since then. And so the Lord has words for Nineveh, and really by extension for all of Assyria, Nineveh being a really representative city in that, in that 
nation. Um, and so the repentance that was found in Jonah is long gone. And here the Lord is, is speaking against Nineveh. The Ninevites, and really the Assyrians in general, were famous for their cruelty. And so just to give you an example, if you turn to chapter 3, verse 3 here, this, this is some, these are some of the things that the Lord, these are some of the ways the Lord describes the Ninevites. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. If you look at verse 10, speaking again here, she became an exile, she went into captivity, her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street, for her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. Now that's maybe speaking more about what will happen to the Ninevites, but it, it, is, it is really in answer to the kind of cruelty that the Ninevites had, had demonstrated against all the nations, Israel, Judah, and everybody else. If you look at chapter 3, verse 19, we get one more snapshot here of just how cruel the Ninevites were. There is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. Never a good thing when all the nations literally rejoice at your undoing. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? That's Nineveh. And, and, and apparently the Lord has had enough of this uh, sort of way of being in, in the, the ancient world. And so he speaks to them through the prophet Nahum. At this time in Israel's history, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, that was in 722. Uh, but the southern kingdom of Judah had not yet been conquered. And Nahum steps in because it seems as if the Assyrians are waiting at the door of Judah and that Judah probably is, should expect a similar fate. And of course, we know, historically, Judah is not actually undone by Assyria, but by Babylon. Uh, but yet, here we get a glimpse as to what exactly happened and what the Lord's purposes were, even through uh, Assyria standing at the door. Uh, the prophet also uses really poetic language. I mean, really heightened imagery. As you read this, you can't help but see a lot of pictures and a lot of emotion conjured up. Uh, as, as you read these words, there, there's a lot bound up in what Nahum has to say, uh, and which it makes sense, right? Because the people of God, as they're reading this, they're, they're living in dread of the Assyrians, and, and what Nahum speaks to them uh, surely is going to, uh, is going to speak very, uh, to, to very high emotion. Uh, so he matches that. An outline of the book, chapter 1, the Lord reveals just how angry he is. Chapter 2, we get a glimpse of what Nineveh's fall will be like, or, or why it has come about. And chapter 3, the Lord pronounces woes on Nineveh. Woe to Nineveh. But I want to look at a key passage here in chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll, we'll read through the end of the chapter. I want to give you a sense of maybe what the, the crux of this book is. There, there's so much about Nineveh, and yet here we get to chapter 1, verse 12, and the Lord continues to speak. He, he says this, Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, meaning the Ninevites, meaning the Assyrians, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, you meaning the Israelites, in particular the southern kingdom of Judah, 
I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Chapter, uh, verse, verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. I think, there, and, and the Lord goes on to say so much more about Nineveh, and of course, building up to that, the Lord says much about his anger towards Nineveh, but I think right there we get a glimpse of all the purposes bound up in this book, all the, all the, the purposes behind the, the prophetic words of Nahum. The Lord is bringing justice to Nineveh, but he's not just bringing justice to Nineveh, and this is what I want us to see, that there, there's a correlation here between Nineveh's strength and, and then weakness and Judah's affliction and eventual deliverance. There's a correlation between Nineveh's strength and Judah's affliction. As Nineveh is strong, so is Judah afflicted. But as Nineveh is weakened and ultimately destroyed, so too is Judah set free from, uh, from not actual captivity, but from this, this very real threat of it and certainly the the cruelty of the Ninevites. Behind it all, I want you to understand, is, is the sovereign hand of God. As you're reading this and you think of how cruel the Ninevites are and you think of how the Lord actually uses the Ninevites to chasten his people, even as Nahum says, to afflict Judah. Uh, that does not mean that the Lord is pleased with Nineveh. It doesn't mean that the Lord has plans for the ultimate final destruction of Judah. Rather, the Lord uses this wicked people to refine and chasten and humble his people, who are his by his choice. No people can undo that. Not Judah, not Nineveh. And so the Lord, this whole, this whole story is, is really a picture of God's sovereign hand overseeing all these things, really ultimately for the good of his people. When Nineveh is at full strength and many, God's affliction is present in the lives of Judah. But when Nineveh is cut down and even passing away, as the word tells us, Judah's affliction diminishes. So let's, let's look at this. Let's parse this out here. Let's look at Nineveh's judgment. And their judgment is swift and it is certain. Uh, he, he says there, uh, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down. And pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. I really meant to look at verse 14. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Nineveh's legacy is going to be wiped out. Your name will cease. People will hear the word Nineveh and they will have no idea what anyone is talking about. It won't make sense. It will sound like gibberish to them. You will not have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to carry on the culture and heritage and traditions of Nineveh. It's vile. It will be done. Their legacy is, is going to be eliminated. The idolatry of Nineveh will also be destroyed. He says, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. 
Their, their, their worship of all these false gods, their, their pagan wickedness and idolatry will be undone before their eyes. And not only will their legacy and their idolatry be destroyed, but even their very lives, the, the life of this nation, but also the, the lives of the individuals who have lived in the wickedness of this nation of Nineveh. He says, I will make your grave and, I'll, and, and just the, the way, the, the reasoning the Lord gives, because you are vile. I mean, this is just so strong. It's so strong. And yet, this, this is how the Lord truly feels about the Ninevites. Uh, th- this is what they have coming to them for all the wickedness that they've perpetuated, not only on God's people, but on all the nations around them. So that's Nineveh's judgment. It is swift, it is certain, it is on the way, and it will be, there will be no stone unturned, there will be no prisoners taken, it, it, will, be, it will be swift and complete. But then there's Judah's deliverance, which I want you to understand will be just as complete, will be just as sure as the destruction coming to Nineveh. Judah's deliverance looks like this. He says, behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Man, what, what a contrast. You see the destruction, the chaos, the cruelty of the Ninevites, but, but what Judah should be expecting, even as they look out their windows and see the Ninevites standing together in, in, in armor, ready for battle, uh, you should expect peace. At some point in this, Maybe literally, maybe metaphorically, certainly there, there's a more cosmic thing going on here than just this one little battle. There will be a herald who gives you the greatest news you can imagine, which is that peace is coming. There will be no conflict here. There will be no bloodshed. There will be no tears or sadness. Everything will be preserved and prepared and taken care of. You should expect comfort. You should expect peace. Not only peace, but, but then there's this expectation for Judah, and I think this is so interesting, of joyful obedience. The, the Lord says to them in verse 15, Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows. Now here's the irony. Judah's not really been all that great at this. Israel was really bad at it. That's why there is no more Israel. <laughs> there's just Judah left. And of course, we know from reading the rest of Scripture that Judah eventually will be taken captive by the Babylonians because they will fail to uphold their covenant with the Lord. But here is something, there's a promise being woven in here. There's there's an expectation, there's a hope for God's people if they'll see it, which is that what is on the horizon for them is not a pagan nation coming in, wiping them out, overthrowing all their means of worshiping the Lord and gathering together and singing his praise Instead, they should expect to be able to fulfill those things. He says, keep your feasts. And feasts are a really good thing, by the way. Uh, Fulfill your vows. And what a joy to be worried one day that you may not be able to uphold the things that you have sworn to do before the Lord, but then the Lord says, no, 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 you'll fulfill them. I'll make sure of that. Man, the, the, the people of Judah have an expectation of deliverance that really goes above and beyond what what we might have thought originally. And not only is there peace, not only is there obedience on the horizon, but there is 
preservation. He says, never again shall the worthless pass through you. I'm not just doing this one-off. Never again will the worthless pass through you. Certainly not Nineveh. But ultimately, you, you, should, you should not expect ever to be finally fully defeated. Which is a really hopeful thing when you consider that eventually Judah is overthrown by Babylon. Their own kings are taken away. But, but here is this kind of, this, this hopeful, subliminal promise that the Lord has made. And even that is not final. Even that is not ultimate. But one day you'll fulfill this feast in a way that you've never imagined. One day you, you, you will fulfill your vows in a way that you can't even fathom. One day you, you will look back on all these worthless nations that have run roughshod through your land and, and, and you'll just laugh because it will, it will have amounted to nothing. That's the promise that the Lord has made for Judah through this prophet Nahum. What is interesting about this then is that is that the freedom of Judah is really, is, it's tethered, it's correlated, like I've said, to the destruction of their enemies. And, and I think what is helpful in this book for us as God's people today is that when we read this, we can understand that our freedom likewise is, is really directly connected to the destruction of this world. Uh, Elizabeth prayed earlier, you know, for the uh, kajubis, that they would be protected from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and that's such a great triumvirate of, of the, it's, it's kind of the unholy trinity of this world that we live in, right? The world, the flesh, the devil himself, all three of these things conspire against God's people, but our freedom is truly found in their, their collective destruction. And so our, our salvation is found in the defeat of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the question remains, how does how does our Nineveh get destroyed? How, is this, how does this play out? I want to read a few passages of Scripture here. Don't flip to it. Just hear these, these things. These are words from the New Testament about the gospel in particular. Colossians 2.15, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, or rather the Father disarmed the rulers and the authorities, triumphing over them in Christ. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. John 12, 31 and 32, now is the judgment of this world, Jesus says. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The, the rulers and authorities of this world, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, these things are all overthrown. They're undone by the crucifixion of Jesus. John 16, 8 through 11, when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And then verse 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now it doesn't always feel that way. You look out, you see who gets to be king or queen, 
You, you look out and see who gets all the money, who gets all the prestige, who gets all the fame, who, who is treated w- w- with the utmost importance by, by the people of this world. And you think, I don't know that, that I could describe what they're experiencing as overthrow <laughs> or as defeat. Uh, but just like the Israelites who, who are sitting here looking out their windows at the Ninevites, we, we can actually rest assured uh, that, that the Lord has purposes even in these things even in the seeming victories of wickedness, even in the seeming victories of sin and temptation in our own lives, in our own hearts, that the Lord uses these things for the good of his people. And, and ultimately, even, even these things that are, seems to be just so inescapably part of us, the Lord will overthrow them and reign and rule in our lives and, and in this world in a way that we haven't actually ever experienced. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, which is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Some application points here. Number one, our enemies are God's enemies. I think we kind of know that, we, we hear that, and, and we can nod our heads in agreement, but I want you to really think about this. Who, whose, enemy, whose enemies, uh, man, um, I can't think of how to phrase this question. It's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing. Uh, who was hated first? You or the one who made you, Right? Who, who, who gets more ultimate rage? The, the citizens of the kingdom or the king? Obviously, clearly, we need to think of our enemies, and, and I'm going to use this language, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the Lord's enemies first. Because of that, they're your enemies too. Right? Which means that the Lord's commitment to their destruction is for your good. And, and it means that as committed as you may think you are against your own sin or against, against the, the wickedness in the world around you, as, as committed as you may think you are to, to bringing those things down, to seeing those things defeated, your zeal for that it pales in comparison to the zeal that the Lord has for those enemies of his. And I just think that's so encouraging because I don't always feel particularly zealous in that fight. Or, or maybe another way to put it is I don't always feel particularly strong in that fight, but, but these are the Lord's enemies first and foremost, not mine, not yours. And so we have nothing to fear. The Christian can say with, with utter seriousness and no irony whatsoever, what is the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? Whatever you're facing, whatever, whatever sin against you or sin within you or, or just evil outside pressing down on you, whatever it is, uh, what's the worst that could happen? Because the Lord is, is for the good of his people. He works all things for their good. But it also, another implication of that is that we shouldn't, really, we shouldn't dally with the enemies of the Lord either, should we? All right, there, there's no room in here for Judah to play Scrabble with the Ninevites. Uh, they're not supposed to maybe talk to them, chat with them through the window. Um, no, the Lord's going to bring swift destruction on them. Don't waste your time. 
And I think that that's helpful for us to remember as well. We don't need to dally with the enemies of the Lord. We don't need to dally with the enemies of our souls. Number two, salvation is not merely personal, but it is cosmic in significance. Now, I, I think this is probably also pretty obvious, but let me just flesh this out for you. The gospel has internal effects. We know this. We, we've witnessed that or experienced that in our own lives. Those are sometimes the easiest things for us to, to experience or to, 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 uh, to name. But then there, there are also external effects. Um, there, there are external things that the Lord is also doing that bring about our salvation and that serve to protect and, and watch over and preserve his people. I think sometimes we, we want to avoid the appearance of blame shifting so much by in, in the way that we own our sin or in the way that we march through the difficulties of life. We just kind of want to shoulder that load on our own or we, wanna, we, don't, wanna, we don't want to uh, give the impression that we're irresponsible or, or that we're trying to put something off on someone else or even kind of that phrase, you know, the devil made me do it. I think we're right to want to avoid using that phrase or using that kind of mentality in the way that we fight against sin and flesh and the devil. Uh, but, but there is still a world and a devil outside that actually does conspire against you. That conspires against the church of God. That conspires against Jesus and all of his saints. Yeah, no, we, we, we need to own the, the fallenness of our flesh. But we also need to acknowledge that there is a world and a devil that conspire against us. Focusing on the flesh, I think, can sometimes give the impression maybe of, of self-reliance, even kind of self-improvement. You know, when we just zero in on the things that are wrong internally and, and fail to account for the fact that we do have enemies external to us who will bring us down, uh, who, who will kick us, who are opposed to our well-being. Uh, who are certainly opposed to the image of God in which we were made. And so I think, I think we can actually walk with a greater degree of confidence even in our salvation, knowing that that is true and that the Lord himself is for us in our fight against these things and that, that he does superintend all things for our good. We do have enemies that go outside of our own souls. Um, but the Lord is our defender and our protector. Uh, the Lord watches over us. And then finally, the fruit of our salvation is found in joyful obedience. Uh, not the other way around. Your salvation is not the fruit of your joyful obedience, but actually joyful obedience is the fruit of your salvation. The, the Lord doesn't say, I'll send those Ninevites away if you will fulfill your vows. I'll send the Ninevites away if you will keep your feasts. He says, I'll send them away so that you can keep your feasts. I'll bring this about. I'll make this happen. Uh, joyful obedience is the fruit of the Lord's defeat of, of all of our enemies. And so I want to conclude with Romans chapter 8, which I think is just such a good kind of rephrasing of, of so much here that, that is in this book. Chapter 8, verse 31 I know you're familiar with it. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or Ninevites, or the world, or the flesh, or the devil himself, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What's the worst that could happen? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we we thank you. We praise you that our enemies are your enemies, that our enemies are our enemies because they were your enemies first. They're your enemies primarily. What comfort that gives us because it means we are not alone in our fight against our enemies. Even the enemies that lurk deep down in the, the, the brokenness of our own souls. Even the very things that the world and the flesh and the devil would seek to to utilize in our downfall and and in the the downfall of your church. And all these things, we are more than conquerors, Lord. Not because we're great, not because we are witty or, or well prepared for battle, far from it, but because you have made a promise to your people that you will remove their enemies from them. And because of that, we can enter into your courts with thanksgiving and praise and joy. We can obey you. We can worship you with, with freedom. We, we can have peace that this world cannot comprehend. Lord, we, we want to hasten the day where we see all of these things destroyed at the, at the throne of your majesty. Lord, until then, help us to walk boldly and with confidence, seeking to obey your word and following you knowing that you are more invested in our glorification and sanctification and, and personal holiness and the destruction of all these things that stand opposed to us. You're more invested in, in that than we are. So Lord, would you, would you give us the joy of watching you at work in our lives and in the lives of one another? And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.